Well, good morning, Forefront. How's everybody doing this morning? Good, good. Happy Memorial Day weekend. It's good to be with you. If you're tuning in online, thanks for joining us. Hope you're having a great weekend. If you have your Bibles, let's grab those and open them to the book of James. It will be in James chapter 1. It was a regular weeknight, like any other weeknight, and Bill Fong was at uh, the Plano Super Bowl, bowling one of his weekly games, as he always did, hanging out with his crew of four as he was uh, pulling out his bowling ball, and he just felt really good. In his warm-up round, things just weren't clicking. He just wasn't making good contact, uh, but he was excited because he was on two of his favorite lanes, lane 27 and 28. So the game starts, and, uh, and Bill and, and the normal group start throwing, and uh, the first time the ball leaves his hand, it just felt perfect, and strike. So he switches over to lane 28, next throw, perfect, strike. And Bill knew he was going to have a good night. See, I don't know about you, but I spent a little time bowling, not a lot, but I always believed that a 300 game, a perfect game, was the holy grail of bowling. But it turns out That the holy grail of bowling is actually three perfect games in a row. It's called a perfect series. And so 900 is what every amateur or pro bowler is shooting for. And so Bill starts off the night, three, four strikes in a row. Next thing you know, four, five, six, seven, eight. People are paying attention. He finishes it up, 12 strikes in a row, perfect game. Over the PA announcement, the announcer says, Bill Fong, laying 27 and 28, perfect game, 300, and everybody cheers. But Bill's feeling pretty good. So he goes to his bag, and he pulls out a, another bowling ball, and the people look over and they think he's crazy. They wonder, how can you change balls? You just, pour, you just threw a perfect game. Bill said, I just feel good. So he starts throwing again, second game, 13. 14, 15, 16, 17, strike, strike, strike. People start paying attention. 24 straight strikes, two perfect games. They call over the announcement again. The PA announcer says, perfect game. Bill Fong, lanes 27 and 28. Now there's about 100 people gathered behind. Everybody's watching Bill. Bill is feeling so good. This is the day that everything's going to change for Bill. Bill gets up there. 13, or 25, 26, 27, he has bowled 33 straight strikes. At this point, people are cheering, they're taking selfies, they're posting Facebook status updates, but every time Bill grabs the ball, the crowd hushes. He grabs the ball, he starts to feel a little strange, he starts to sweat, he starts to feel a little sick in his stomach. He starts to feel a little clammy on his hands, but that doesn't stop Bill. He grabs the ball, goes up, rolls 34 straight strikes. It's getting real. He is two strikes away from perfection, the perfect series, a 900. So Bill goes up. He's not feeling good at all, but he knows. He feels off balance, but it doesn't matter. He goes up there, rolls number 35, and pin number 10 just hangs on, but then another pin comes across and knocks it down. The crowd erupts. They're on the brink of history. Nobody has seen this. Out of the history of keeping track in the game of bowling, only 21 perfect series have ever been bowled. So Bill knows if he can get number 36, ESPN will do an article. He'll have sponsorships. Maybe he can even go pro. So Bill grabs the ball, walks over, sweating, feeling sick to his stomach, just thinks he's nervous, walks up, bowls number 30, throws number 36, and the pin on the end doesn't fall. And the crowd just goes, oh. 
and deflated. Here's a picture of Bill. Bill drops down to one knee in that moment and is just disappointed and discouraged beyond all belief because that was his ticket to finally having something work out in his life. So everybody kind of shakes his hand and says they're sorry, but you, you bowled an 899. It's pretty great. You still did pretty good. And his friends take him out for a couple pops that night, and he just doesn't feel good. So he goes home, and he just continues to, to get worse. And he starts getting sick to his stomach and throwing up, and he finally goes to the ER. And the ER doctors tell him, Bill, you're having a stroke. Oh. And so you look back, and they, they think about, about um, strike 34 is when the stroke started, when he started to get sweaty and started to feel sick. So Bill was so discouraged, but what the doctors told him was that actually missing that last strike saved his life because his heart wouldn't have been able to handle a perfect series. He would have died on the spot. But because of the discouragement of having to spare instead of strike, Bill Fong lived. And he, it was, it, he was interviewed by an article, or in an article, and he was asked the question, are you happy with an 899 that you're alive, or would you have preferred to bowl that 900? And he said... <laughs> No, I'm okay with the 899. You know, isn't life full of these moments where there is so much hope and expectation and excitement and energy, but yet disappointment follows? And in that moment, you just wonder, why? Like, why couldn't that have worked out for me? I'm sure Bill wondered, why couldn't that have been my moment in the sun? But I think Bill can look back and see that there was a reason that it didn't work out for him. And that the fact that it didn't work out actually saved his life. See, for you and I, I think this happens to us. And there are those moments in life where we look back and we think, well, I'm sure glad my prayer didn't get answered. I'm sure glad that I didn't get what I asked for. It's like that old Garth Brooks song, remember? Sometimes God's greatest gifts are unanswered prayers. As you look back, maybe it's weeks, months, years later, and you say, you know, I'm really glad that I didn't get that job because my career took off over here. Or I'm really glad I didn't stay in that relationship because I, I saw how that ended up over there. But what would it take for us, rather than looking back in hindsight to see how God moved in a trial or a difficult situation or a disappointment, what would it look like if we were keeping track with God real time? How would that change our lives? How would our lives be different if we could see what God was up to the moment it happened? The moment of discouragement and the tough time actually came. What would that look like in our lives? According to the Bible, the way to do that is to gain wisdom. When you hear the word wisdom, what do you think of? When you hear people talk about wisdom, what comes to mind? Maybe you think of somebody like this, Socrates. Ancient philosopher, critical thinker, big picture Socrates came up with the Socratic method. You think, well, when I think of wisdom, I think of somebody who is just this, over, this overarching figure, somebody who has these concepts and these critical ideas. That, that's wisdom. Is that wisdom for you? How about this guy? Who's that? Yoda. Yoda, the wise master. Sometimes we think of wisdom as the wise old sage. Right? The person that's been there and done it. And if we can just go to that wise old sage and climb the mountaintop to get there or go to the swamp and he rides on our back right, while we climb trees and jump over rocks, the wise sage, the master, will teach us what we need to know. Is that wisdom? How about this guy? 
Who's that? Einstein. Sometimes we think about wisdom as this accumulation of knowledge, this brilliant, somebody who is just intellectual, has a great understanding, and uh, just has their, their mind. Uh, it's just so far beyond ours, the way they think. Is that wisdom for you? See, sometimes we think of wisdom in these categories, but how would God answer this question when it comes to the wisdom that we need in our lives? Charles Spurgeon talks about wisdom, and he says this. He says, wisdom is the right use of knowledge. To, to know is not to be wise. Many men know a great deal and are all greater fools for it. There is no fool so great as a fool as a knowing fool. Ouch. But to know how to use knowledge is to have wisdom. So what is wisdom? Is wisdom knowledge? Not exactly. Wisdom is something bigger than knowledge. Wisdom isn't some advanced degree. I think we all probably know people they may be in this room that have master's degrees and doctorate degrees that you're not going to ask for advice, right? Just the reality of looking at people's lives. We understand that knowledge doesn't necessarily always equal wisdom. There's more to it. Wisdom is more than that. If you were with us last week, we kicked off this new series called Get Real. And we're looking at the book of James, and we're seeing that James talks about what it looks like to have a real faith. And how we can, we can live a real life with a real Savior in the real world. And he starts this letter off by talking about trials and disappointments and hardships and discouragements. And he's talking about not necessarily these big, huge, overarching things that happen in our life, but just the regular ups and downs, the regular disappointments, those regular discouragements. Uh, you know, and it can be everything from small to big, include global pandemics and health issues and losing loved ones, all of that in this umbrella of trials. And what James says is that God actually wants to use our trials for a purpose, that he's, he's doing something in the midst of that. And for us to really understand that, we have to have wisdom. We have to understand wisdom to understand those trials. But I don't know about you, but for, for me, typically what happens, though, when I hit a trial or I hit a discouragement or a hard time in my life, I don't typically wonder, okay, God, what are you doing right now? Typically, what I want to do is get out of it. Anybody else? Hard time comes, and what do you do? You say, God, get rid of this. God, protect me from that. God, pull me out of this situation. You know, you go to the doctor, and you get that health diagnosis, or you're waiting on the test result. What's your prayer? God, I pray it's not that. You, you find out that work's going to start laying people off. What's your prayer? God, protect me from this. You find out that a relationship's on shaky ground or, or finances are in a bad shape or whatever it may be. What your prayer usually is, at least mine is, is God, keep me from that. Make that go away. But James says that God actually allows these trials for our good. We say, God, get rid of them. God says, there's a lesson I want you to learn. And we say, I think I've learned enough, right? So there's this beautiful picture that James has given us here that God is, has a purpose for us in our trials. And I think it teaches us something about ourselves. I think first, when, when I went out of the trial while God's trying to keep me in the trial because there's a lesson in the trial, it shows me that I totally miss how God works in my life most of the time. It shows me that I prefer ease and comfort and security while God prefers transformed character. And so James says, guys, listen up. We need to get real because God has so much for us, and God wants to actually bless us through the hard times in our lives. 
And so here's what James really says. He gives us the golden ticket to how we can actually see that trials are something we can grow through rather than just something we go through. Like, like just trials are, I mean, just think about that. Like, it, it's just backwards. It's counterintuitive that trials are actually something we grow through rather than just something that we go through. And the only way we can grow through it, James says, is through wisdom. So look with me. James chapter 1 will be in verses 5 through 8 today. Just three verses. And James is going to talk about the kind of wisdom we need. So if you have your Bibles, grab those. James chapter 1. And if not, we'll put the words on the screen. Here's what James says. He says in verse 5, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Forefront, this is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this day, this beautiful uh, moment that we can share together as we open your word and see that the words of Jesus' brother James speak to us about trials, the hard times in our lives that we walk through. Well, here we are 15 months into a global pandemic where we've all walked through a difficult trial, a difficult series of trials. Many of us right now are in the midst of maybe the most difficult trial we've ever faced in our lives, Lord, and we need your wisdom. Help us to see that. So, Father, today I pray that you speak to us through your word. Lord, I pray um, for those in our church family, uh, Lord, that, that are, are just maybe today faced with making a really hard choice or really faced with that difficult um, situation looming. And, Lord, I, I know that it can weigh on our hearts, and our hearts can be very heavy, but, Lord, help us to see that you are here to guide us, direct us, and, and to give us wisdom through this process and in this time. So, Father, give us exactly what we need today. Father, I pray when we leave today, we look more like Jesus than when we came. And it's in Jesus' holy name we pray. And everybody who agreed said, amen. amen. So what is wisdom? If you had to define it, what is wisdom? And specifically, what is the wisdom that James is talking about? Well, I think maybe a good working definition would be this. Wisdom is the ability to see life from God's perspective. If you're taking notes and you need a new definition, there it is. Wisdom is the ability to see life from God's perspective. And just ask yourself, maybe you are in a place right now where you have a difficult decision to make. Or, or maybe you're in a place right now where you're facing some personal conflict. Maybe that personal conflict's at home, it's at work, it's in the neighborhood with a neighbor across the street, whatever it could be. Let's say you're in a place where you have something stirring up and going on. Wouldn't you want to know God's perspective on your situation? I think we all would. I think that would make a huge difference for all of us to, to, to see the world from God's perspective. Here's the thing. We live in a world with a lot of perspectives, don't we? I mean, just think about all the perspectives that you come across in a day. Culture's got perspectives, political perspectives. doesn't matter uh, where you go at, at work. You have separate perspectives. Your friends have another perspective. There's perspectives where, when it comes to social organizations and higher education and all of these things. And then think about the last 15 months. 2020 and 2021 have been such a challenging time. And how many perspectives have we heard, seen, or experienced over these last 15 months? So whose perspective is right? Who is the right one to listen to? Is it your perspective? Is it my perspective? Is it culture's perspective? 
You know, I think one of the reasons that we are so good at making such bad decisions is that we look for everybody else's perspective before we look to God's. I'm guilty of it. We say, what does culture say? Or what does politics say? Or what does my community groups have to say? Or what does my workplace have to say? Or how do I feel about this situation? And those perspectives are our perspectives. Those aren't God's perspectives. So the question is, who's right? I don't know if you've ever experienced this in your life, but there's been so many times, and I think it's been highlighted of this last year for me. There's been so many times. I know you guys think that I make the right decision every time. I know you guys, you know, pretty confident that I, that I do that. But I, I'm like, I'm batting like 100. I feel like, you know, I'm well below the Mendoza line. I think that this year has highlighted the fact, I don't know about for you, but there's so many times in life where we feel like we know. Like, I know the right way to handle this situation. I am confident that this situation is going to work out in a certain way. I am confident that if I do this, this thing this way, at this time, it's going to be great. Only to find out that it backfires or it doesn't work. Anybody else felt like that this last year? A couple of you. One of you. We're, we're together in this. We're together. But isn't that a reality of life? Like, we, we so often think that we know what we're doing. And often we're reminded that we don't. We're reminded that we are kind of missing, that our perspective isn't big enough. And this is what Paul talks about in Romans chapter 11. See, Paul is saying that what perspective really matters is God's, because God is the one with the vantage point. Notice what Paul says in, in Romans chapter 11. He's, he's writing to a group of, of Jewish men and women who are going to church with a group of Gentile men and women, and they don't like each other. And they're just fighting over everything, and they're trying to figure out who's right and who's wrong. And here's what Paul says. He says this, neither of you guys are right because you're missing what God has to say. Notice what he says. He says, oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his, inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? Notice verse 36, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Do you pick up what Paul says? He says God's perspective is so beyond ours. God's perspective is so much higher than ours. That his wisdom is so much further beyond ours. See, in my life, when a bad thing happens, I try to fix it. I don't know if you guys do that too. Something bad happens, the next thing you know, you're just trying to, how can I fix this problem, Right? How can I, I go online, I read books, I try to gather as much information I can to try to fix this problem. But what the Bible says is that our wisdom is horizontal and God's is vertical. And so we need God's wisdom if we're ever going to figure it out. But the beautiful thing is God is never in short supply of wisdom. That when you go to God for wisdom, he never, you never get an out-of-office reply. God never tells you you're running out of minutes. God's wisdom is always ready and available. And here's what this means. This means that God knows the greatest potential outcome for your life. That God knows the greatest potential outcome for your life. And God knows the best way to achieve that outcome. That you might think you have a good plan and you have a good perspective on how this thing would work. And if all these things would just line up and the dominoes would come together, it's going to be beautiful. But God knows the outcome, the greatest potential outcome. And he can tell you the steps to get there. And that's why we need his wisdom over ours. So if you're here today and you have a decision to make, if you're here today and you have a conflict you're working through, if you're here today and you're beginning a new relationship, don't you want to know the best possible outcome? Yeah, you do. You do. But the only way we know that is 
by looking to the wisdom of God and God alone. So wisdom is the ability to see things from God's perspective. So the question is, and I don't want any Sunday school answers, how do we get it? So I think this is what James is telling us here. He's saying that wisdom is not found by looking around. Wisdom is found by looking up. Let's get real. Look what he says in verse 5. He says this. He says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. Now, when I, when I read that, you might think the same thing. When I first read that, I often think, well, James is talking to probably two different groups, right? There, there's one group that's like, got it together, right? There's one group that they've got their, uh, their ducks in a row. They, they know what they're doing. They're following along. They, they got, they're on God's plan. But then there's this other group over here who's just kind of a mess, and they lack wisdom big time. So you guys in that group need to ask God for wisdom. Like, you guys need Jesus, like seriously. But I think what James is really saying is, hey, if you're experiencing a trial, which we all do, and if you're breathing oxygen, which hopefully we all are, then you need wisdom, right? Like, we all need wisdom. Why? Because we're all a mess. Because we all have the wrong perspective. And we're all broken and fractured because of sin. I think this is what James really is getting at here, is that sin is the reason we miss it. Because sin distorts our view of ourselves and our view of everything around us. You know, one of the, the, the biggest challenges, I think, in life is that, and I don't know if, 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 you're, if you've been here, but when things are going good in life, who gets the credit? You do. Right? It's natural. Things are going good. Money's coming in. Work's going great. Everything's falling together. God, thank you. I'm awesome. Like, this is great. But what happens when things go the other direction, right? When things aren't going good, when there isn't money in the bank when there's no food in the fridge, when things are hard, when trials hit, who gets to blame then? Not me. God does. God, where are you at? God, why have you left me here by myself? God, how come you haven't answered my prayers? How come that guy's living the dream, but I'm not? We, we totally turn it the opposite direction. It's because of sin. Sin gets in the way. Sin breaks us up. Sin makes us distorted. And we say, well, God, help my kid who's going through this really horrible time. God, help my boss who's a terrible leader. But it's never me. It's never my problem. I think this is what James is getting at the heart of here. That sin distorts ourselves. And here's how you know it's true. Because when you hit a really hard time, Often, rather than diving in and asking God for wisdom, what do we do? We eat ourselves into bad health. We anxiety shop until the credit card is maxed. We look for a new relationship because the other one just doesn't seem to be doing it, right? So something new is what I need. But I think what James is trying to say is, look, if you lack wisdom, which you all do, you've got to seek it in God because you're not going to find it anywhere else. And so we don't need new shoes. We don't need to go out again. We don't need a new relationship. What we need is the wisdom of God. And God is ready and waiting to give you the wisdom. Look what James says again in verse 5. He says, if you lack wisdom, ask God. Because God wants to give it to you. Because he gives generously and to all without a reproach. You know, I, I, I don't know if you guys do this. I tend to ask people questions that I know are going to give me a good answer. Like, you guys ever do that? Like you have a question to ask, and you, you, maybe you go to Google, or you guys remember Ask Jeeves? Remember that old website back in the day? Remember that one? You go in there, and you're like, you know, you're like, how do I reattach a gutter on my house? You know, like whatever it may be. But we tend to ask people that we know have answers for us. So, like, if I need to find out if, if I can save money on a mortgage rate, I'm calling my buddy Chris. Or if I need to find out how the investment rates are looking, I'm going to call my friend Phil. 
Or if I'm in a place where I, I need to figure out how to change my workout because I've plateaued, I'm going to call my personal trainer buddy Jared. Or if I need barbecue tips, I'm going to call my buddy Justin. But what about like hard times in life when they come? You know, you're not feeling good, what do you do? You go to WebMD and then you get really scared, right? You're like, shouldn't have done that, okay? Like where do we go when we really find hard times? The Bible tells us that we need to go to God. That we need to ask the expert. Because God is, remember, his ways are higher than our ways. His ways are immeasurably more. And so we need the advice from the expert. Notice what Proverbs 2 says. Proverbs 2, 6, Solomon says, For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding, that he is the source. And James says that he wants to give generously to you, which means it's a gift. He wants to pour it out on you. God doesn't play hide and seek. My kids love hide and seek. God doesn't play hide and seek. God's not hiding behind the tree, you know, moving around it when you get closer. You know, God's ready to just pour it out. He's ready. He's there waiting. Jesus, is, Jesus says, ask, seek, and knock. It also says that God wants to give you wisdom without reproach. What does that mean? It means that God's not keeping score. God's not saying, Drew, you've already asked me three times this week. You've exhausted your wishes. Right? God is going to give us. He's not keeping track. He's not keeping score. We never run out of minutes on our plan. He's eagerly waiting for you to ask for it. But some of you may be here today, and you may say, look, I've been asking. Like, I've been praying. I've been asking God. I need your wisdom. Help me. But God doesn't seem to be answering me. And if that's you, I just want you to ask the question. Don't raise your hand. Don't write it down. But just ask yourself the question. Are you really asking? And when you ask, are you believing? Or is your ask full of doubt? Notice what James says in verse 6 through 8. He gives us this warning. It's, it's kind of hardcore. Notice what he says in verse 6 through 8. He says, but let him ask with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. And notice what he says about the person who doubts. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Ouch. Right? That, that stings. Because when I read that, it sounds to me like James is saying that if I have doubt, then I'm, God's never going to answer my prayer. And that's hard because... I'm regularly doubting. But here's the good news. James isn't talking about intellectual doubt here. Praise God, because we all battle intellectual doubt. It's part of living in a sinful world. It's part of being broken and fractured. He's talking about something else. James is talking about something beyond that. Notice that word he has there in verse 8, double-minded. He said he's a double-minded man. It's interesting. This is the only time we read this in the entire New Testament. James actually coined this word. This is James' word. And the word double-minded means double-souled. And James is saying this. He's saying that a double-souled person is someone who goes out to find what all the worldly wisdom is, hits the books, does all the research, gathers as much information as he can. And then he goes and he finds out what God has to say and gets God's wisdom. And then he says, okay, well, just in case your plan doesn't work, God, I'm going to have another plan here. I'm going to hedge my plan. I'm going to hedge my bets here, God. If you don't come through, then I'm going to follow my own plan. And James says, that person has a divided heart. 
That person has a divided mind. That person has a divided soul because that person never truly pushes all their chips into the middle and goes all in. That person is always hedging their bets against God, and that means that they're doubting God. Douglas Moo is a commentator, and he writes about this. He says, when we live like this and we live double-minded, we have spiritual schizophrenia, that we just are living double lives, double minds, double hearts, and double souls. One day it's God's wisdom, the next day it's the world. One day it's God's wisdom, the next day it's culture's wisdom. And because of that, we're like waves tossed by the wind, and we're unstable. It hurts. Because I don't know about you guys, but I've done that so many times. Honestly, I, I can't tell you how many times I've been there. Where you're like, God, help me, give me wisdom, bring me through this situation. But God, if it doesn't work out, I've got another plan. And what happens, we typically put God on our own timetable, don't we? We pull out our stopwatches and we put God on a timer. Okay, God, help me here. But you're on a timer. And if it doesn't happen quick enough, then I'm going to have to hit reset and do it my way. But one of the things that I think James is pointing it to us here is that God doesn't work that way. God is the source of the wisdom. And so God wants us to come to him with pure hearts and ask and wait on that wisdom. Because nothing good in the world works like this. We all want a silver bullet. We all want things to happen as soon as we want them. But nothing good happens that way. You don't work out one day and all of a sudden you're in good shape. Like, whoa, look at those abs, right? You don't eat good one day and all of a sudden your blood pressure goes down. You don't go to one class and take the CPA exam the next day. Nothing in life is done in a microwave. How come we want God's wisdom in a microwave? How come we want God to fix our problems in a microwave? When God knows the perspective, he wants us to gain the perspective so here's the question. What if we turned off the stopwatch? And what if maturity and growth for us looked like widening the gap for how long we wait on God? That we actually wait for God's timing to come through. What if we waited for God to do what he said he was going to do? You know, in the book of Genesis, we read about Abraham and Sarah. You know, Abraham and Sarah, if you guys know the story back in the book of Genesis, they, they had grown into old age and they didn't have any kids. And God comes to Abraham and Sarah, and he promises that he's going to bless them with a son, and that his son is going to be the one that he's going to bless the entire world through as the generations go. And Abraham and Sarah, they believed God. They had some intellectual doubt, no doubt. If you watch their life, they made a lot of bad decisions. They made a lot of mistakes. They tried to do God's work for him, but they still believed God. Do you know how many years Abraham and Sarah waited? They waited 15 years. And then God showed back up and said, no, I'm still going to come. Sarah laughed. Ten years later, 25 years. It took 25 years for that promise to happen. You think they were a little anxious, <laughs> tired of waiting? But they kept waiting. See, there, there's this concept that we have to understand is that wisdom comes from a continuous pursuit of seeking God's perspective. Like, we're never going to truly gain God's perspective unless we can slow down and, and Pursue it over time. It's a moment-by-moment moment pursuit. It's a day-by-day day pursuit. Not just considering God's way as an option, but considering God's way as the only option. Because we have to remember, God sees it all. God's perspective is higher than our perspective. And there's a truth 
that we often have to hold on to is that God's timing is different than ours. And God is rarely early, church, but he is never late. Amen? Rarely early, but he is never late. In, in the book of Isaiah, the Old Testament prophet, right after he writes about Jesus being the coming and being the Messiah and the suffering servant in chapter 53, he says this in chapter 55. Again, talking about our little window and God's big window. Notice what he says. Isaiah 55, 8 through 11, he says this. He says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declared the Lord. You have a tiny window. I have the world. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For, notice the example, As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish the, that which I purpose and shall succeed in that thing for which I sent it. Do you guys hear what Isaiah says? God through Isaiah is saying that my word never comes back null and void, that what I say is true, and what I do is right, and what I am is wisdom. And so we might not see what God is doing, we might not see that we're in the middle of this trial, this really hard situation, the back end of a, whatever, the middle of a global p- pandemic, whatever it is. We may not see what God is doing, but he's saying, look, I'm doing something, and I'm using this trial to grow you and to make you my person. Our perspectives aren't the same. Sometimes God brings the rain, and the rain waters, and all of a sudden sprouts and grass and flowers bloom. Sometimes God brings the snow, and a giant snow bank sits there and and then finally it melts, and then it waters. And whether God brings you that wisdom soon or that wisdom over the course of a long time, the Holy Spirit will use God to give you the wisdom that you need. So James says if we want wisdom, we have to ask God for it. So what's that look like? As we close, I want to give you just three quick takeaways, three quick pieces to this. Sometimes we often think about wisdom as this thing, well, God, I'm going to go to your word. And I'm just going to flip open the Bible, right? And I, you guys remember this game? You ever do this back in the day? And just put your finger down? Okay. Wow, that's, that's not what I thought you would say, God. You know, that doesn't, that doesn't really make sense. See, sometimes we think that's how God works. We're going to put him in the microwave, but that's not what God says. It's a continual pursuit. And so three quick paths to as God is going to grow us with wisdom. The first one is this, that we have to seek wisdom through God's word. That if we're not continually in his word, we're never going to be able to truly grasp wisdom. That wisdom won't ever be ours. It's always going to be elusive. We're going to hope that we get it through osmosis, but we're never going to get it. And so this means that we actually have to be in God's word. That we don't just read through it to check off the box or scroll through it to get through the, the Bible reading plan. That we sit under the teaching of Jesus and we hear God's word. And that we're in it every day. You will never understand the word of God until you're in it all the time, and you're in it regularly. So ask yourself right now, can I say that I'm in God's word enough to truly hear his, learn his wisdom? But beyond that, we have to continue to be around God's word. And one of the ways that we are around God's word is we sit under the world weekly. That's what we're doing here. This is what church is all about. God, for some reason, decided that he was going to use the church as plan A to reach the world. And he was going to use the church as the way for God's word to be taught. And so, yeah, we spend time in God's word each day, but each week we need to be in a place where we hear God's word taught 
and explained and communicated. Because it's in those moments, it may not be what I say, it's what the Holy Spirit reveals to you as the Holy Spirit's working on your heart. And here's the challenge that we have. If we decide that one day I just don't feel like going, that may be the day the Holy Spirit wants to unleash the snowbank of God's wisdom in your life. Whether it's online or it's in person, it doesn't matter. It just means that God wants to pour his wisdom out on you. But it's his timing that it's done. So we need to be in the word. We need to sit under the word. But we also need to be around other people who can bring the word to us. I love Colossians 3.16. It says this. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart. This is why we do life together. This is why you need to be around other Christians, because we can tug at each other's heartstrings and communicate the word of God to each other. This is how God shapes us and reveals to us his wisdom. But second, we also have to seek God not just in his word, that is the primary foundation, but we seek God through prayer. You know, we, we often talk about prayer as this thing that we're just we're talking with God. But how many of you can say a relationship would be great if all the talking's one-sided? If you go home and talk to your spouse or boyfriend or girlfriend or, or kids and all you do is talk at them, but the moment they start talking to you, you walk out of the room, how's that relationship going to go? Not great. Isn't that what we do when we pray, though? God, give me this, give me that, I need this, help this, pull this out of my life, save me from this. Love you, God, peace, see you later. Like, there is, has to be this communication that happens between us and God, and, and the reality is that if we never slow down to listen to God speak to us in prayer, then we're going to miss one of the ways he gives us wisdom. But third, the third path to wisdom, and all of these th three things have to come together and converge, is that we seek God's wisdom through the believers in your life, that God has put brothers and sisters in Christ, God has put family members who are believers, God has put coworkers who are believers in your circle, and God wants to use those as wise counsel. To bank the idea, hey, here's what I'm reading in the Bible. Here's what God's revealing to me through prayer. Is this a path you would recommend me go? And God uses those three, those three things. We've got to sit under the, we've got we to be in the word, we've got to sit under the word, and we've got to gather with the believers around us. But we have to be prayerful and seek wise counsel in the people that God has put in, my lives, in our life. I like what David Platt has to say. Notice this. David Platt says this. He says that God gives wisdom generously, abundantly, Liberally, He pours it out to all without discriminating, without question, and without hesitation. This is the God of the universe saying, I will impart my wisdom to you. But it's not done in a microwave. It's done as we continually pursue seeking God's perspective. Some of us in this room right now are in the fight of our life. Or we have family members who are in the fight of our life. Or we're just so discouraged and beat up and disappointed because of what's happened that we've allowed ourselves just to kind of drift from, from seeking God's wisdom and we're just kind of waiting. God, at some point, hopefully you'll tap me on the shoulder again and show me where I need to go. And for some of us, our prayer needs to be, God, help me in my unbelief. God, help me in my doubting so I'm not unstable and I'm not a double-minded person. You know, I want to close with a story. In Matthew, in Mark chapter 9, Jesus and his disciples are out, and they're walking around and healing the sick and teaching um, about the kingdom of God. And there's a, a shout from the crowd, and there's a man that says, Jesus, will you please heal my son? My son has got an evil spirit. 
and he's mute. He doesn't speak, and he gets thrown into these convulsions all the time. And, and, and so Jesus says, well, bring him to me. And so Jesus, Jesus, they bring the son to Jesus, and Jesus says to him, how long has this been happening? And the dad says, it's been happening since birth. But if you, could, if you can have compassion on him, if you can please heal him, help us. And notice what Jesus says in Mark 9, verse 23 and 24. Jesus says to him, if you can, he says, all things are possible for one who believes. And notice the father's response. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe. Help my unbelief. Forefront, let's make that our prayer. Because let's be real. It's hard when we're walking through a trial or a difficult circumstance. Just to be 100% full of faith, it's so easy to doubt and to struggle and to have these challenges. And what I think Jesus is calling out to us to say is, let's make our prayer. I believe, help my unbelief. Whatever it is, Jesus is saying, look, trials are hard, but I want to use those to shape you and mold you. So trust me. Trust me that I have a bigger view than you do. So just follow me, and I'll lead you where you need to go. You know, forefront, the really good news is that Jesus wasn't double-minded, that Jesus had a singular focus because he's crazy about you, and he loves you so much. He stepped out of heaven and came to this earth to take on our form and went to the cross for us to trade places with us so that we can be put on the path to life. And all he says to us is, look, you're not going to figure it out. You're never going to have it all together. But you know what you can do? You can follow me. And as we do, Jesus will lead us to the place he wants us 